lawyer, author, poet, performer, motivational speaker, and dad. To a Grinnellian, no less. Hassan Davis and his son Malcolm on telling stories to create a better world. We could take it slowly This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Binversi. On today's show, the Davises, Hassan, who visited campus to celebrate Martin Luther King Day, and Malcolm, a third-year theater and dance and political science double major, talking about stories, creativity, and finding their voice. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. Hassan Davis is a renowned educator who works with individuals, communities, and institutions, mostly to help kids achieve their dreams, no matter the odds. Sounds like a lofty goal, but it's a fitting description for someone who bills himself as a hope dealer. He visited campus at the beginning of this semester to celebrate Martin Luther King Day. He shared his own journey of overcoming challenging circumstances and learning disabilities. Along the way, various people inspired him to see a version of himself that he could not. And now he brings that message of hope to people, especially youth, through work in schools and the criminal justice system. Davis wields the power of stories to engage in difficult discussions about the history of slavery and racism in this country, and help people reflect on their own stories, no matter where they come from. But if you would have told 11-year-old Hassan Davis that he would do any of those things, as he sat at the police station waiting for his mom to pick him up, he would have called you crazy. Well, I, th- I think that, you know, like all stories, the chapter before the event is always something. You know, growing up with learning disabilities and challenges and lots of home instability, uh, food insecurity, uh, there's a point where y- you realize you don't get what other people get, and you start taking shortcuts. We wanted the things that we saw, that every other child that seemed to have and the life that they had, and that was the thing that led us into you know, shoplifting. From there, it escalated. We would get into fights and we would do lots of things that, you know, when you don't care about the consequences because you don't think uh, you're ever going to be, you know, somebody has to worry about consequences, the world's going to ever let you be that other person, then you take what you can uh, before somebody finally takes it back. And so at 11 years old... It actually started, my buddies and I, at the store after the holidays, and and one of them decided that he wanted some Legos. His little sister didn't uh, get a lot of toys for Christmas, and that was a a constant struggle with with us, you know, and he just wanted his sister to have something. And it's like, you know, Joe, Gerald, this ain't the time. So it it, it fell apart from there, and he wound up uh, in custody, and and the rest of us uh, fled. But over the course of the day, the police tracked us all down. And they all ended up at the police station. It was mama starting to show up, and all states of disrepair trying to pick up their boys and frustrated and angry at a system that, that does this. One by one, Hassan's friends come and get picked up by their moms. My mother was the last to show up, and she, um, she came in very calm and very collected, and thanked the police officers, did the paperwork, and in my head I was like, this is not good. They left, and she was still composed. Didn't go off, no yelling, no punishments doled out. We got in the car that she had to borrow to come and get me, and, and I'm waiting for her to go off me so I can find some way to justify my stupid by, you know, by her anger. And um, somewhere in that long ride home, I finally got the courage to look up at her, and she was just bawling these huge tears. And she looked down at me and she said, baby, if you could see what I see every time I look at you, you would know how great you already are. That was it. Given what had just happened and the direction of his life at that moment, his mom's words didn't make much sense. But he listened to those words. And that gave me space in my thinking to say, well, maybe there's something else I haven't seen. In that 11-year-old boy, Alice Lovelace saw the potential that her son could not. And that was Hassan's introduction to hope dealing. 
It's the idea of being able to plant a seed that we don't know will grow, that we don't know will bear fruit, but we know that if we don't plant it, there's absolutely barren land. And people like that were the ones who were able to help me slowly reclaim the sense and belief that I had a place in the world and something to give to the world. But it would be a long time before he could prove his mom right. And it got worse before it got better, but there was that moment where you could start to see where better was possible. His mom planted that seed of hope, but Hassan was still following his charted course to failure. Labeled a troublemaker at school, he was expelled multiple times. Throughout his childhood, he moved around a lot and dealt with family trauma, as well as his own ADHD and dyslexia. He was really struggling in traditional school and eventually enrolled in an alternative school called Horizons, where he found another hope dealer, Lorraine Wilson. An amazing woman. She was a child of the 60s, long hair, wore these thick glasses that magnified her eyes because she was legally blind. She was very soft-spoken, and I think she was psychic. Wilson welcomed Hassan into Horizons, where he attended from 8th grade to senior year. She saw in him what he could not. Even though Horizons had more space for a kid with learning disabilities, he still struggled and managed to find himself in trouble. But it was a small school, and she managed to help me navigate. She would give me special tools to navigate my own disability and things that I didn't even recognize until much later. You know, and I would be bouncing in my chair and, and frustrated, and she would say, Hassan, do you think maybe you want to go outside and, and run around the school as hard as you can? And I was like, what? That doesn't... Yes, I think that is what I want to do. And so she would let me leave class and go and I would run around the building, you know, three or four times until I was, could barely breathe and I would come back in. And what I didn't know, and I'm, I'm assuming she did, was that part of my challenge, my ADHD, is that my brain is hyperactive and hyper-focused. And, and so with all that energy, everything draws my attention. But if I can burn off enough of that energy, it slows my brain down and actually the world starts to make connected sense. And so when I would do those things, I'd come back into class and, and, and it would be like the whole world had sharp edges for like 30 or 40 minutes. Wilson could tell what Hassan needed, and she gave him the tools to regulate his challenges. And, just as important, she saw him as a person, more than just a troublemaker. As she sat me down in her office once. Uh, I got called to her office often, but this one time, and I get in there and wait for her, and she comes in and... And she looks at me, and, and, and I'm waiting for the speech that I've gotten very often. I know who you are. I'm just waiting for you to screw up bad enough for me to be able to put you out, and I'm going to move on. And I'm always like, you know, I can do that by lunch. I know who to curse out. I know who to hit. I, you know, I know this. And so I'm sitting there waiting for her, and she comes in slow like she always does, and she sits right across from me. And she pauses for what seemed like an hour, and then she, she starts. I mean, just like I planned it, you know, I know who you are, and here we go. And then she says, and I think that you can accomplish anything you set your mind to. And she just stopped. And me remembering that she's legally blind, she can't see anything but shadow beyond two feet, I finally say, Lorraine, you know that it's Hassan, right? And she sat there for a second, and she said, I know who you are, and I think that you can accomplish anything you set your mind to, and... All you can do, Hassan, is make me a fool for believing such things about you. And it just, just like my mother, you know, there was no context for this to be the conversation we would have. But it left me wondering what they could see that I couldn't. And, and so she was just that person. And, and that became uh, the, the support that I had in school um, until, well, <laughs> until I got expelled. My senior year, she called me that same office and sat me in that same chair and said, well, you, you, you were failed in the class this semester, and there's no way for you to gain enough credits in the last semester to graduate, so I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And I thought my whole world was going to fall apart. I mean, this was, this was home. This was my haven away from the streets and the things that I had had to survive before. And, and, you know, with the same love that she held me, she said, but, you know, you have to go. And what I understand now is that she then contacted my mother and told her about Berea College and said, you know, 
there needs to be a way forward. And, you know, so I got my GED and, and, and started trying with a 1.67 GPA, juvenile criminal record, ADHD, and dyslexia. I'm like, yes, college, that must be the next step. So on he went to Berea College, a liberal arts school in Kentucky that provides free tuition. It's also known for being the first interracial and co-ed college in the South. This was not where I was supposed to go. But because she and my mother, Alice Lovelace, could see these things from me, this made perfect sense, you know, because if they could see it, then that just means that, you know, I haven't gotten there yet. And, and that trust that you can have when somebody really invests in you makes a difference. And so it, it, it drew me into a whole other world. Sometimes it takes someone else to see what's inside of you and bring it out. And that was certainly the case for Hassan. He made it to college, but the struggle didn't end there. And it wasn't a magical moment uh, where all of a sudden uh, everything lined up and, and the world was perfect. I still had disabilities. I still was coming from a, a huge opportunity gap in my access and supports. And when I got into college, uh, one of the hardest parts was trying to figure out how I, I could navigate this system that I didn't understand. And because of that, he had to find other ways to prove himself at Berea. Most young people don't like talking, you know, and so I made it an, an effort to always be the one to volunteer. You know, I'd be the one to step up to, to do an oral book report in front of class. I, I didn't read the book, but I talked to the five people I know read the book, and, and when the bell rang, hey, I want to give my report. And I'd get up and I could, you know, impromptu, give a five-minute report and cover all the things that I received from these people to piece it together. And so that was my survival piece. You know, I, I, I made it the first three semesters doing just that, you know, still practicing my penmanship at night when my roommate went to sleep with my third grade pad, red line, blue line, red line, reading over and over a, a couple pages in, in, in each class so that I could make an intuitive leap and show I deserved to be there. But eventually it caught up to me because you can only fake it so long without support systems. And I was too afraid to tell anybody I needed help because where I come from, if people know your weakness, they use it. And so I thought the only way I do this is alone. And it finally caught up with me, and I couldn't improvise fast enough. And I got expelled, went back home, you know, the classic moving to your mama's basement and uh, running with my brothers back on the streets and realized that if I didn't do something dramatic, this was going to be the story everybody told, the story that they started. And they thought they already knew, you know, at seven years old when the teacher closed me in the cold room because I was never going to be anything. And, and so one day I wrote my mother a letter from Fort Knox, Kentucky. Dear mom, I'm joining the army. You know, I just had to make a break and find another place to be until I could figure out who I was gonna be. Went through basic, went to advanced training, came back out into the reserve, and as soon as I got home, I went back to Berea and started petitioning to get back in. And Berea told him no, several times. But he would come back, again, and again, and ask them to reconsider. And after a week of this, the dean was like, look, what are you doing? I was like, well, dean, this is the only thing on my to-do list. And, and we finally worked it out, and they brought me back on every probation. And I thought that I was really ready for this. And I ran into a, a massive conflict with one of the professors in one of my classes who had already decided that I wasn't the, the caliber of student that he deserved to teach, and everything about that dictated his response to me in the class until at the end of the semester he, you know, made it really clear to me, you know, that he felt me in the class and he felt me because uh, he had created a circumstance that was absolutely proved that he was right. The professor believed Hassan didn't deserve to be there. And it really shook me. And um, I wound up being expelled because I was on probation. And I left and uh, moved just to the next town over because I, I couldn't go back to Atlanta a third time. I knew that I'd never get out. I started working construction and, and uh, coming back to the school to visit and helping. I was teaching a martial arts class and kind of staying connected because I didn't want to, to lose that this is where I wanted to be. This is, I knew that I deserved to be here, just not, didn't know how yet. And so after a year, I came back and, and petitioned to get back in. They were like, oh, no, that's not going to work. But I asked to speak to the committee, the, the, the scholarship committee that makes that decision, which students don't usually ask for and they don't usually get the chance to. 
And I went to him and I said, look, nobody's going to look at a place like this. They gave a guy like me three chances and say, what a terrible place that is. You know, but what if I can do this? What if I can do the things that I believe is going to prove everything about what Berea's mission is and everything about what I believe in myself? I just need you to loan me $3,000. Was, it was a Hail Mary, so I just put it out there. And they're like, really? Because Berea pays everything, right? And I'm like, on top of that, just give it to me, right? And the, the student that has failed the most in your school, invest here. And they said, well, that doesn't make any sense. I said, well, no, there's just this new computer called a Mac. Introducing Macintosh. It does all the things you'd expect a business computer to do. And it does some things no other business computer has ever done before. This has something called Microsoft Write 1.1 with spell check. I'm not even quite sure what that is, but I'm pretty sure if I had something like this with spell check, I could finally get what's in here that I think is so good out so you could see it. And you can make the decision, but, but at least you could see it the way I see it, and then you can decide if I deserve to be here. And they said, Okay. But on a few conditions. You're going to be on academic probation, labor probation, social probation, convocation probation, and double secret probation. And if anything goes wrong, you have to promise not to come and ever talk to us again. Hassan talked his way back into Berea, but this time with his new 25-pound personal computer, hauling it all over campus to each class. And that first semester back, he made the dean's list. And then I went back to that professor in his major where he was chair of the department instead of his freshman, you know, required freshman seminar course. And I took that class and I sat in front of him every day so he understood that he would not stop me. With the right structures in place, Hassan started to flourish. I was elected homecoming king and I was voted president of student body. And, and so once the momentum started, once I finally found the, the structure and the supports, then I could be all the things I'd imagined my whole life I could be, but the world always told me, no, you don't get that. For Hassan, school had always been a constant struggle, but through perseverance, luck, and some incredible mentors, as well as new technology, he was able to overcome his learning disabilities and succeed in a traditional classroom environment. And, uh, and, so, and so I really think about the tools that young people with disabilities have now which is such a game changer. You know, there is no reason any young person with a passion and desire to be uh, amazing can't do it because we have these tools now that I couldn't have even imagined when I was a child. I mean, I was like, somebody told me once, Hassan, if you'd have had this stuff like in elementary school, I don't even know where you, you know, because, you know, I was making this stuff up just trying to stay above the ground. And, and finally, technology caught up with me in a way that allowed me to, to, to finally excel. Hassan got back on track at Berea, graduated as senior class president, and set his sights on the next place he wasn't supposed to be, law school. He was moving fast, and technology might have been catching up to him, but it was at this point that he decided to turn back and look at his story and what it could mean for others. For a long time, I tried to outpace my story. You know, my life was changing and transforming in some, some amazing ways very quickly, um, and people looking at me and my, my accomplishments and my accolades were, were building very fast. And so it was, at first, it was a real temptation not to look back, right? You know, somebody actually told me once, Hassan, if you, if, if you didn't tell people about all that other stuff, right? I mean, you got this amazing resume and all these great things, but when you start talking about that other guy, uh -huh. it just kind of, it makes people uncomfortable and, you know, and... It's messy. And, yeah, and, and I finally realized that that was the point, mm -hmm. you know, that there were people, young people in particular, who are going through the same struggles and some struggles greater than mine, but to some degree they struggle, and in some point in their life people have told them that that struggle was the only thing they get. And, and I realized that if I was going to be a, a servant leader, if I was going to be someone who, who brought more light than darkness to the world, then I had to be a role model. And in order to do that, I can't, I can't show up to kids in crisis and say, you should be like me and just do great, because all they hear is, my life is great and you're just not working hard enough. Mm -hmm. 
But if I go all the way back to the beginning, and I usually start with the, all the accolades, you know, my government appointments, my presidential this, and, and I put all it out there, because then their eyes roll, oh, great, somebody else come and tell us, if you were just a better person, you could do great. And then I say, I tell you that because you have to hear that part of the rest of the story. It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Now let's go to the front, and I'll tell you how your story and my story is. And so that allows this book ending where they, they get to really see it. And I've had young people come up, it's like you were telling my story. And I, I just, you know, everything you went through, I went through so many of those same things. And my question's always, and, and now what? And they say, and now I know that I got more to write. And that's the piece. When they understand that this, this through line is, you know, and I always talk about the present and the possible. Right. We have to live the truth of who we are right now, but we have to always be aiming for that other person and doing the work to become that person. And, and the idea of hope dealers is our job is to help those young people imagine and craft that. That's what Lorraine did for me. Mm-hmm. That's what my mother did for me. They painted this vision so broad across the sky that no matter where I was looking in this darkness, there was some light. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a chance to really write myself and figure out what my North Star was. And, and I think we can do that. We do that more, and we need to do that more more for young folks. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be able to imagine it and see it in, you know, in someone else. And sometimes somebody else has got to speak it for you before you go, huh? I, <laughs> that Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She said I could. That's what I was telling people. My mama told me I could do this. So I don't know why y'all keep getting in the way, uh-huh. you know, at law school. I got expelled from law school three times. <laughs> I never missed a day of class. Uh-huh. And it was like, maybe you don't understand how expulsion works. I said, and I said, maybe you didn't read my application. Because it would not be the thing telling you that I was the guy that walks away because people tell me I don't deserve to be. My mama told me I was great. Dr. Rand Wilson told me that as long as I didn't give up, nothing could stop me. And so this is just another challenge. But I know where I'm going to be. And you can either be part of that, help me get there, or you can be one of those people that got ran over because I'm going there. Uh-huh. And, you know, we would have this every every semester. And finally they said, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and get this done. And, and you know, and, and, I, and I got the tools I needed to, to be able to, to perform there at a level that proved I deserved to be there. Uh-huh. But the law schools in particular were so resistant because they're the elite institutions. And so holding them accountable instead of walking away what happens to young people who come from disadvantage, who experience disability, who are struggling in systems, is too often they believe they don't deserve. They believe that anything that somebody gives them is a bonus and they should be grateful for it, and they shouldn't be speaking and demanding more. And one of the things that I learned is that I have a right to everything, and I will fight for everything. and. If you're strong enough to keep it from me, then I won't get it. But that's going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, teaching young people that tenacity, that persistence, is the thing that allows them to really push past the barriers that have been put up. Because lots of people are going to tell you you don't deserve to be places. And too often, if you don't have a a, a core that's powerful and, and, and centered, you're going to go, yeah, maybe I should go do something else, you know, um, because yeah, this is this must be too hard for me, and I just I just I'm not wired like that, mm-hmm. and so uh, I said no, I don't think you know who you're talking to, right? Because clearly you haven't read the story, you know, because you're a couple chapters behind. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. So now you've got tons of different job titles that you've kind of done um, and been involved in juvenile justice mm-hmm. and kind of youth mentoring and education and an author and you do these historical reenactments just kind of all over the place yeah soldier Uh, (laughs) construction worker right yeah 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 people like how old are you (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um you know kind of one of the through lines is this idea of being a hope dealer yes um maybe not always when you were working on construction were you dealing hope because you had to kind of find it for yourself at that point that's right that's right but in the more recent, you know, kind of since law school and, and continuing on, you know, and I love the idea that we can kind of create hope and give it to people, especially yes. um, because it isn't a given for everybody. No, it's not. Um, but what does that what does that work actually entail in the communities and with hmm. the people that you work with? Sure. So it, it comes out in lots of ways. Uh, when I work with professional communities, I'm usually building capacity in educators, social workers. Uh, youth workers, 
all those people that work with young people at some level. Uh-huh. And part of it is giving them the skills to engage uh, young people and, and give them a space to really grow. And so, and, and talking very frankly about, I always tell people, you know, you have to actually have hope to be a hope dealer, mm-hmm. right? Because you can't give what you don't have, right? You can't write a check out of an empty account. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's about us going back and taking care of ourselves. You know, it's just like that message on the plane. Put your mask on first before assisting others. And we have to do work ourselves. We have to unpack our own traumas and dramas and things. And so I do a lot of work around that, giving them the tools then to engage young people and build uh, structures around their classrooms or their their meeting spaces that allow them to to explore the world differently with safety and 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 understand that somebody's there helping them navigate. And so a lot of my work is there. At the same time, I'm going into schools, going into juvenile justice centers, going into group homes, and I'm working with students. I do a lot of uh, hands-on leadership development and engagement with young people, giving them the same skills that as a, as a, as a high-level administrator I receive as a Rockefeller fellow and as an Annie E. Casey fellow. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, one day I was like, well, why are we waiting until somebody gets 40 years old and they're already at the top of their profession to give them all these skills to be good leaders and to, to be, you know, engaged uh-huh. people? And so my wife and I actually started creating leadership and youth development programs for high school students, for college students, to start giving them those skills and frameworks so that they actually come into the conversation prepared to thrive instead of struggling until they've struggled so much people want to reward them by giving them the skills to thrive. And, and, and it's amazing when you see that because I've seen, I've seen young people light up and, and, and start charging the world. And one time I had a young man say, why, why did it take a special person coming to show me this? Right? Why didn't it, isn't this what everybody getting every time? And I, that was a great question. We ought to be doing more of that. And it's that social-emotional engagement. It's understanding your own experience experience in a way that helps you translate that to the world in a meaningful way so do you and and it's goal setting and the ability to imagine yourself greater and all those things don't happen accidentally you no. know and so so there's a lot of intention that I try to put into it and I go in and do I do speeches for the whole class you know the whole school I come in and do you know assemblies I do those types of things uh-huh. too and I love them because a lot of storytelling a lot of in- interaction and so those are the two main places, working with folks and professionals in the field and then uh, working on the ground directly with young people. I've been going into schools more, training education students, social work students, uh, criminal justice students, because, again, just like, the, you know, they need to have these skills when they come out, and we don't teach these anymore, right? Mm-hmm. We're teaching you how classroom management, and yeah. classroom management is not you standing in the room saying you're in charge because that's the quickest way for somebody to make you feel foolish. Cause, and so I, I teach them these same skills for how they build a classroom culture. How do you build, you know, you know effective engagement so that young people feel safe enough that they can listen and learn instead of, you know, worrying about who they have to hit or how they act up so they get put out of the space that's embarrassing them. And so, so it, it runs the whole gamut, you know, and I, I, so that's the great thing about being ADHD, you know, <laughs> I, is I, you know, I kind of... Just run with it. Yeah, and people say, well, what, what, what is the one thing you do? I said, well, the one thing I do is like everything uh, because, because all of it's necessary. And, you know, there are not, not a lot of people who've had the number of experiences I have had, you know, and I think that having that wide range of experiences has, has exposed me in a way that allows me to speak very specifically to lots of really interesting things. And so when we have these conversations, when I'm coaching, you know, I can speak to an amazing number of challenges because I've had all of them, uh-huh. you know, and an amazing number of, of, of opportunities and types of work because I've, I've, I've been in those fields as a professional across the board. And so it, it has given me a chance to, to really be uh, – kind of the, the, not a jack of all trades, but a, kind of a universal uh, tool, you know, kind of the tool that you can adjust to fit most situations. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that's worked really well because it, it, it makes me feel like I'm actually being valuable and useful and I can be valuable and useful in, in lots of places that I, people would normally feel, you know, so I can go into deep rural Kentucky up into the hollers and, and talk to a family about, you know, their kids' success 
and, and ride the mule and chase the pheasants with the little kids while we're trying to work out something and, and be authentic, right? And then I can go straight down to downtown and, and, and say, hey, you know, these are the things we have to do. And so I've had this, this range that's given me access to a, a very diverse spaces. And so I, I feel comfortable in all of them. And, and so it gives me a chance to work in all of them without um, feeling like I don't belong. Uh, you know, sometimes I show up and, you know, population of color multiplies. When, you know, I had a dude ask me once, so you must be the guy going to the school to speak this day. And I was like, yeah, but what makes you say that? He says, well, last week they said a black guy was coming to speak at the schools this week, and you're the only black guy I've seen since then. Uh-huh. I mean, and, and, some, and usually people are, oh, well, maybe I need to get out of here. But I'm like, yeah, I'm that guy. He's like, cool, I'll show you where it is. <laughs> you know, and so the ability, when I say that my result is every child engaged, empowered, and provided a clear path to their success in education, in career, and across their community life. I mean every. And so I go into the hollers and I go into the hood. I go into the, the skyscrapers and I go into, you know, the, 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 the one-room shacks. And, and I mean all. They don't have to look like me, think like me, talk like me, act like me. But as a hope dealer, I committed myself to making the world better every place I stand and I can't do that if every time I do it, there's a comma saying, yeah, but except for them, right? Because they don't think like me because they have this political leaning, and I don't know if they're right. And, and it's, it creates tension sometimes because mm-hmm. I'm not quiet about who I am. I'm clear that this is who I am, and I'm still here for you. And I still, if you're willing to take a chance and take a risk on somebody that completely is different than you, there's a chance that I can help you get places that you wouldn't imagine, just like I got places I wouldn't imagine. And, and building that kind of trust has been a thing that's allowed me to really do the work and, and feel like I do something well. Yeah, yeah. A lot of it, I think, comes down to being able to tell your story powerfully in a way that resonates with yes. people. And, yes, Um you know, being in touch with, with your own stories is important. The story um, is absolutely the core of it. And I... I got a little taste of that last night when you did your your performance um, as York, speaking mm-hmm. of stories, and I think it resonated with, with a lot of people in the audience as well. Um, so another thing that you do, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but you've done this for a while, is you, po- you perform as historical figures. That's right. Um, and you've got a few that you do, York we'll talk about, and then um, Angus Burley and Joe Lewis That's as right. well. Um, so you kind of bring these characters from history to life and tell their stories, and yesterday you performed as York. Now, I doubt many listeners will probably know who York is. Um, he's not quite uh, a one-name kind of guy like Prince or right, any or Beyonce, of those. Not yet, right. Not, yet, <laughs> not, yet, not yet, that's right. But maybe deserves to be so. Um, most people are familiar with the Lewis and Clark expedition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely in most history that's textbooks. Right. But as we so often do, we only get the romanticized, whitewashed, and white-centric version of the expedition. Yeah. I assume that was also the version that you knew as well. So it is. When did you first hear of York? You know, I first heard of York uh, probably about 22 years ago, as I was I was doing Living History, and and, and uh, my first story was the story of a Civil War soldier, and then someone suggested I consider telling the story for the Lewis and Clark 200 commemoration bicentennial, and um, and they started talking about this guy York, who I. You know, I, I was kind of embarrassed. I didn't, I'd never heard of a guy named York. Well, it's not in the book, so it kind of made sense. Um, so I started doing research, and it's just an amazing story that nobody was really paying attention to. This guy who was there from day one to day done of the expedition, he, you know, was, you know, every trial, every tribulation, every victory, every failure, but he received absolutely no consideration for it. And and so as I started digging through his story, it was just so compelling. And at the, at the bicentennial, I, I realized that this was one of those moments where literally the whole story could change. Mm. At the 200th celebration of this event that shaped our nation, we get to put a, insert a new story and a new voice, and that almost never happens. And it's a voice that, that confirms so much about how we have been successful as a nation of diversity, a nation that has pulled on different strengths at different times, and, and it's antithetical of the story that's been told that only a few people engaged and sacrificed and, and created this great thing, right? Every moment in our history that we call pivotal 
there are these folks, right? Native Americans, African Americans, Latino people, uh, white folks from all over Europe, you know, some who at that time weren't even considered to be white folk, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's all this drama, rich people, poor folks. And so I really started using that to unpack all of these stories and figure out at those moments, where were the, the critical things going on that proved that Declaration of Independence? Right? People, Because people talk all the time, I get in this debate with scholars, well, you know, the Declaration wasn't actually written for everybody. It was written by white men who owned slaves. And, and I'm like, well, that's true. But it was also written by individuals who had this age of enlightenment idea of themselves to be better than their current. Again, that present versus mm. possible. <laughs> and so these most brilliant men in the nation sat down and drafted an ironclad statement of intent that didn't say, we white men in America who own land and control slaves have the God-given right, one God's given right, to do anything... Right. That would have been such an easy statement of independence. Right. Instead, they said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, cannot be stripped away. Among these, not limited to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. I mean, just that statement alone, when you break it down, when I do exercise with students, I say get the thesaurus and the dictionary and we're going to break this word by word and we're going to replace every word in this sentence. And then I'm going to read it and it's amazing what they see when they do that, right? This document, this statement is a statement of universal possibility. And we have a right to interpret that. That's why they left those loopholes. I'm a lawyer. Loopholes are a thing <laughs> I love. And they left so many big old loopholes in there because they knew. Thomas Jefferson wrote about it all the time. He knew that he could not be the enlightened person he imagined himself to hmm. be. But he left these loopholes in there so that future generations, if they were brave enough, they could actually own that and we could finally be the thing that they set out to become. And I, and I truly believe that. And if you look at it and you interpret some of his words, I mean, I mean, he said things like, you know, when God finally turns his eye back toward us, what a terrible day it's going to be, right? God's not going to be happy with where we've been. I mean, he was really clear about this. And then he said, I'm going to keep these slaves because I'm really keeping them safe, right? And, and so he was contradictions. He couldn't imagine giving up all the power he had, but he could imagine a world where that kind of power didn't, didn't exist. And, and that was the thing that we, we started marching toward 200 years. Mm -hmm. Get me going like last night. I just, I just kind of start. That's all good. Um, so, you know, why did you, why did you maybe personally connect with the story of York and you know the trials and tribulations that he faced on his journey? He was the, he was the slave of uh, William, William Clark, Clark. Mm -hmm. the leader of the expedition, and you know he, from the way you described it, and probably accurately so, he was right there with William Clark every step of the way, and That's sometimes right. in front of him. In front of him, <laughs> yeah, he was, and he, you know, and, and there's always this this question about you know what enslaved people do. I believe that he grew up and was indoctrinated to believe that his job was to protect William Clark, and I believe that that was absolutely his mission and role when they started out. But as they encountered all these other communities that started to tell him. Dude, really, you're not security. You're like the guy. Uh -huh. And, you know, he started to able to reimagine himself in ways that, that most people don't get. And I think that enlightenment started to impact him and the way he would return back to, quote, unquote, civilization. But, I mean, his role was, I mean, William Clark was about to lead a band of roughnecks into the wilderness on a death mission. And I imagine somewhere in there he was saying, if things go bad... I want the biggest, baddest dude behind me, and York's that guy, so he's going. All the other stuff was bonus, that he had the connection with the Native communities, that they revered him. That was all bonus. Mm -hmm. Clark's first interest was, this is my right hand, and he's going to be there. When, he was, when they docked in St. Louis at Fort R Wood River, Camp Dubois, before they took off from there, he had to go over into St. Louis to do the formal transition of power from Spain to the U.S. of the Louisiana Purchase. Mm -hmm. When he left, he told the men, York is my voice. When he speaks, assume I'm speaking. That's a lot of power, yeah. right? And so his confidence that, that York was capable and, and competent was pretty amazing. But, yeah, he, he was there from day one to day done. Uh -huh. There was no question about it. But for so long, he was just considered to be, you know, a footnote, 
oh yeah, he yeah, and York was there. Yeah. And you know, and it just kind of and Chicago we have finally started to get some traction and some attention, which she absolutely deserves too. Mm-hmm. She was she was I mean, she was like commando. If that if I had to choose the toughest member of the expedition, hands down it'd be her. Hmm. Right. I mean, rolling through the wilderness with a colicky baby on your back and still handling your business. She was hardcore. And, you know, and, and so finally we were able to start getting our head around that. And so I think now we're starting to expand and see the rest of the people there who were a ragtag group of, of misfits that, that nobody would have pegged for heroes of a nation. Mm-hmm. And I say heroes, but I understand there's, there's all that other stuff that comes with it, right? right. They also were the, the harbingers of doom for so many nations. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of reconciling that is reconciling the, the truth of the whole story. That's why we got to tell the whole story because there's some celebration, but we also do damage, and all those have to be part of what we tell. Yeah, yeah. It's... Um it's fascinating to see how, you know, York's story of, you know, because eventually he comes back and is not granted his freedom. He's right. still a slave of William Clark. Um, but certainly he tasted something different when he was out. Absolutely. Uh, out west and is yearning for something more. Um, and the, the end of his story kind of fizzles out into the unknown mm-hmm. and it's no longer um, at least documented historically. Right, right. But I think we can safely assume that that he had imagined a life that he was not able to kind of see it out and manifested in in the world that he currently lived in. That he lived in, that's right. Um, And it just, it it feels parallel to your story, except, you know, you're, you are. I got got to the end and, yeah. And, and, you know, when I think about his story, the idea of somebody else ordering your world and telling you, you know, what what value you're going to be in the world and then, and then walking into places where people say, no, no, actually, you could be a lot more, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, then, and, and we've got the tools to help you. And at the same time, people like Clark said, no, no, that's really not you. You can't be more, right? This is all you get to be. And that struggle between the people who want to convince you they know you better than you know yourself, and that you just should just sit there and, and, and be okay with it. And the one saying, no, you, you know, you you have all these things and you need to go out there and give them to the world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I do feel that. I think that the thing that ties me emotionally uh, when I do this work uh, in character is I do draw on my own experience a lot, right? And that's the thing that really helps me take take the work out of storytelling into, you know, living history yeah. is that I get to embody and, and, I, and I draw on my own experiences in so many ways to drive the emotion of, of, of him that, that to really connect with the audience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been interesting because, I, you know, I've, I've, I've taken York and, and my other uh, shows into elementary, middle school, high school, having access to such a wide range of, of, of folks to be able to, to do this work with has really given me a chance to, uh, to be an ambassador in some ways of, of, of stories and encourage young people to, to go and look for the other stories that mm-hmm. they don't know, right, and to, to dig deeper and see, you know, what's the, what's the story behind the story. Uh, and, and that's been exciting. That, that's been pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so what you know, message are you going to share tonight uh, when you speak to people about kind of your, your personal journey and how to encourage others to to find and tell their stories and be hope dealers for yeah. other people? Tonight I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to them about my own experience. I, I usually do that because it's a good frame, you know, when, when, when to, to kind of get the whole story. Then I'm going to lay out some strategies that – when I think about Dr. Lorraine Wilson, I think about my mother, Alice Lovelace, and, and how they and, and others, you know, kind of helped, helped me move along my trajectory, there, there have been some lessons, some aha points. And so I've really worked the last 10 or 15 years to, to pull those out and be able to really magnify those when I'm working with, you know, other folks to kind of show these are the things that, you know, if we were doing these kind of strategies, if we were having this kind of mindset and attitude, uh, I think help us move toward that track of being hope dealers. And I also have uh, another series of points where I think about my own transition points and the kind of thinking that I had to have to to really grasp the opportunities and, and create those opportunities to transform so dramatically. And, and so uh, the first set I call, you know, pages from a hope dealer's handbook, 
uh, the strategies for reaching and teaching and engaging young people in, in, uh, from challenge. Uh, but the other parts are Hassan's rules, right? And I, you know, these five rules that, uh, you know, do something, stop playing small, change your friends or change your friends, forgive yourself, then forgive the world, and deserve victory. Number five is deserve victory, you know, and in everything we do, do it in a way that everybody watching knows that you should have won. You may not win, but everybody watching knows that the heart, the effort, the passion that you put to it, on any given day, that could have been the thing that got you the golden ring. And if you can put that kind of work into it, you can get up the next day, you can brush yourself off, and you can charge in again because you know that your commitment is solid. And, 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 and sometimes that's all we have is this commitment that we hope somebody else can finally see uh -huh. and see like we see. And then, then doors open because, you know, people had to see me. And he's not stopping. He's still running. He's not, he, somebody opened the door, right? He's, <laughs> he's just going to keep beating his head. And so sometimes it's part of that. Wow, he, he just will not let go. So maybe we ought to figure out how to do it. And so part of that relentlessness is showing people that your commitment is complete. And eventually, you know, they, they have to decide if, if they want to be a part of helping you reach that thing or the thing that continues to, to stifle you. And most people, most people want to be part of the story. Most people want to be, you know, in the box where the heroes sit. Hmm. You know, um, everybody wants to, the opportunity to become the hero in their own story and the chance to see themselves in, in, the, in the growth and, and the greatness of other folks. Thank you, Hassan. My pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. I appreciate it. Thanks. Hassan Davis is a lawyer, performer, author, educator, and hope dealer. He visited campus for MLK Day and performed as York, the enslaved unsung hero of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and shared his own story. You can find links to his books on the episode webpage or check out his work at hassandavis.com. When I was talking to Hassan, he mentioned he had a son that goes to Grinnell. This was news to me, and then I finally made the connection. I knew Malcolm Davis. I imagine growing up in the shadow of his father's story brought with it a few challenges, but Malcolm has managed to cultivate his own voice and story, influenced by his background growing up in Berea, Kentucky. Our music lover and podcast comrade Gabriel Schubert sat down with Malcolm to talk about his music and other creative work. Grinnell College is home to a robust community of student artists of all sorts. This week, I got a chance to sit down with third-year theater and dance and political science double major Malcolm Davis. Malcolm is a poet, playwright, rapper, and producer. He opened before Oompa on January 29th in Gardner Lounge. I guess I started making music. I started writing poetry, um, which I think is, is kind of a very similar step in the process for me. Um, in about 2016, 2015, I went to this nice summer camp and learned about poetry and black art and, and stuff. And then I really stepped into the music world this past year. Um, picked up the bass guitar again, started playing, mm -hmm. and then got a laptop for school that had uh, Logic Pro on it, and that basically was my, uh, my my newest step into making music. I'd use other DAWs and stuff to, to produce, but this one really stuck with me. Um, and I, I've sort of just been obsessed with it ever since. I don't know. I think there's something about music that's so present in everyday life. Um, I've taken vocal lessons, like one of them. I took piano lessons. But I don't remember the piano lessons. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I guess the only instrument I really play is bass, but I consider myself a lyricist as well as a producer, I guess. Yeah, awesome. You're from Berea, Kentucky, Yeah, correct? Berea, yeah. How did, how did growing up in the South kind of influence um, maybe your, your outlook on the world overall mm -hmm. and more specifically your music um, as you've kind of made made more music as time's yeah. gone on. Yeah, so um, growing up in Berea is a really interesting, uh, really unique experience uh, as one of the few people of color, one of the few African-American people um, living in a rural, somewhat conservative college town, much like Grinnell actually, um, with a sort of the bubble of the college of liberalism that my parents both went to, um, and then sort of the surrounding conservative community in Kentucky. Um, was kind of crazy. And growing up in, an, uh, in a, as a biracial child as well with the interracial parents um, is a whole nother set of things. Um, but I think it always made me hyper-conscious of my race, hyper-conscious of um, the way that I'm seen, the way that things impact me differently than my other peers. Um, and also I think I realized how beautiful that is and the way that it influences art and the way that art comes from struggle and it comes from that um, unique experience. Um, so, I mean, there's not like there's a 
I'm not really hip to a, a tradition of, you know, Eastern Kentucky uh, musical artists, but I um, think there's an interesting fusion about the, um, the duality of identity that I have growing up there specifically. And I hope that bleeds into my music. I think that um, one song that I had, uh, the Don't Remind Me About Slavery piece, was, was sort of about living uh, and loving a place that displays such incredibly openly symbols of hate, symbols against you, that it might not love you back. Cruising back roads of Kentucky Trying my best to stay lucky In a whip named Haley And we are passing Confederate flags on the daily I think the white man wants to remind me About slavery And sort of, that sort of sums up The relationship I have with home, I think, in that song yeah, absolutely. Oh. I, I was I was planning on asking you about that song and yeah. specifically the video because um, mm -hmm. it's shot with these these beautiful um, takes of yeah. Kentucky scenery and back roads. Um, what was your vision originally for that song? Did that include a music video and yeah, kind of no. what did you wanna what did you wanna show audiences with both the music and your lyrics? Yeah, um, and and the visions as well. So the idea for the song really was rooted in. Um, the music of Gil Scott Heron, uh, who has been one of my biggest musical inspirations, uh, sort of like an icon, the grandfather of hip hop music. Um, you know, he wrote uh, songs like, or pieces like The Revolution Won't Be Televised, etc. Um, and sort of I wanted to follow in this sort of fusion of spoken word poetry with music, with percussion specifically, um, which resulted in, in me making that song. Um, and it was really inspired by me and my buddy in the video, it's, it's him driving his car. Um, just driving around and admiring the beauty and then seeing the way that it's so incredibly, I don't know, contrasted with, I mean, in the video, it's basically just iPhone footage, just driving, didn't expect to see a Confederate flag. I was literally just taking video of how awesome, because it was a beautiful day, we were having a great time. Um, and then managed to sort of capture a Confederate flag, but wasn't surprised by it. Um, so the video was really lucky because I was like, oh, wow, I made this song and then I have this video that kind of I can mm -hmm. sort of make it fit. And uh, and I think it did really well. Um, but I really wanted to sort of try to capture what that's like because um, I think that you can still sort of see the physical beauty. And, and if you know the area, you know the culture, you know the people, the cultural beauty that is Kentucky, that is the south of America, um, the United States, but also see the struggles that it is being there. What what are you trying to get listeners to hear in your music and what kind of goes and goes through your head when you're in the process of production and everything? Yeah. I think I really just try to express myself. I've always found that um well people have always said things to me like, "Oh, you should talk like uh, narrate something or you have a great voice or etc." Um I'm not really entirely convinced yet, but I'm kind of still riding that wave, but I think the idea that um I just I don't know. The feeling of creating music, I think, is something that needs to be expressed. Um, it's kind of like poetry where maybe it's like uh, I have a political or a social reason for it. A lot of my, uh, I think, I express a lot of my discontent with the world, discontent with um, the way that things are happening politically, socially. I mean, just the way that our world is, we were, we were talking about just a while ago, how crazy the world's getting. Um, sort of just like that's my way to cope with it. And I think that other people can hear that too. And maybe they will find something in common with it. Absolutely. Um, so maybe a little bit more specifically towards Grinnell now. Yeah. Um, what do you find special about the community of Grinnell student musicians um, here that maybe yeah. you haven't found in other places? Yeah, I've. Um, so this is my first time really being myself as an artist or really create, being creating the persona or whatever, being an artist. Um, and part of the reason is because of how easy it seems to be at Grinnell or, or how comforting the community is. Uh, the reason I really started wanting to perform and, and write lyrics was because... Um, my good friend, uh, DeMarco Saffold, who goes by Marco Sieve, mm -hmm. um, I would see him having this amazing platform, showing off for all his peers, um, really being like, I don't know, using this to his advantage. Because what you're given here is a, uh, a lot of equipment, a lot of opportunity, and a lot of people who um, are willing to support you or at least show up. Um, so that's what I found was really enticing about it. Um, and, you know, how welcoming Marco was in that community and then people like Ian Donaldson who are just willing to sit down with you and help you, like, figure out how to record, how to um, mix your music, etc. Um, and then just the people who are willing to listen to your stuff and give you feedback. And I think that you can find a lot of that here at Grinnell. Um, 
a lot of like, we have a nice young hip hop community as well. Like, Million Hoodies has done some open mics, and we've been able to have people like Mushada uh, Morocco, mm-hmm. who uh, is a first year, goes by YVNG Rock, and then people like Marty Allen, who's another first year. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who are out there doing the same thing. So I yeah. think that there's what I'm really interested in doing is sort of solidifying that community more um, because I've found that it's so helpful and it's yeah. here. Yeah. How do you plan on um, trying to solidify that community? Do you do you have plans for collaborations with those artists? No. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been talking to um, Marco and Mushada and um, the number of other people just about sort of creating the community. And a lot of times it has to do with the young black men on campus, I found. Um, there's this group called Men of Color Empowered and Engaged. Um, we're trying to sort of solidify the community that is uh, one of the least represented groups uh, at higher higher education institutions, which is black men. Um, so I think it's a community thing as well as, I mean, that's how hip hop and music is sort of tied into that community as well. Um, but yes, definitely some collaborations, some performed collaborations, hopefully some events as well as uh, I'd like to get in the booth and record something with, with some people. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Um, when do you when do you write your music? Uh, yeah. Do you have like a strict process of, of getting into the mindset, getting into the right mood? Yeah. Um, or is it just something that kind of comes whenever the spark hits you? I think... A largest part of the music creation process for me is taking in music and is listening. Uh, so I often find that I'll be listening, whether it's to like my Spotify Discover playlist or to the like playlist of songs that I just listen to constantly. Um, and I'll hear a beat or I'll hear lyrics and I'll be like, that's really clever. I mean, I'm in a hip hop class right now with Mark Laver and just sort of um, realizing the vast expanse of music out there and the fact that to make music, you have to be able to piggyback off of ideas. Um, sampling is just basically that in, in yeah. the instrumental sense, but also in terms of writing. Um, freestyling is also a good way. I mean, just listening to uh, to beats or producing beats. Oftentimes, it's just procrastination, sitting down on my laptop and opening up Logic and seeing what happens. But also, I, I the way I've written my poetry has always been I just write a poem. I don't plan the poem. I don't think about what the beginning of the poem is going to be or the end of it until it's done. And then I have a poem and I change it because that's kind of been how my mind works in terms of um, stream of consciousness. Uh, I mean, I have ADHD, so I've been, the creative process I think is kind of sporadic in that sense, a lot of different ways. Um, but kind of just engaging, engaging the urge when it comes and then seeing what happens. You mentioned sampling a little bit and I know you've got some You've got some cool found samples um, mm. from sounds and noises around Grinnell yeah. um, on that beat 1432 tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you're creating that that sort of that sort of project, um, how, how do you think, oh, I hear that, that's something I want to include? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of it comes from the fact that we listen and engage to music in a lot of different areas with a lot of different noises. Um, so if you're listening to a song, for instance, in those beat headphones that you're wearing right now, unless they're noise canceling, you're still going to hear other stuff. Um, I think for me, the specifically one of the sounds is the Lazier's elevator. Yeah, the, that's the on the first one. That yeah. is, is on the first track of that um, that beat tape, and I think for me it was just something that I hear every day, and I think people probably don't really know what this is, so it might be interesting to kind of throw it in. Um, but I think environmental sounds, and I like the rain sounds, or whether it's like vehicle sounds, whatever. Um, I think that we have so much technology in terms of like you can make people feel as if they're in an environment when they're listening to music. Um, and do you listen to music differently when it's raining and you hear rain on your windows, or when it's you, know, you hear birds chirping or whatever? Lots of different things you can play with besides the actual instruments. Yeah. Um, so I want to congratulate you on on your awesome set I uh, before. It before Oompa um, mm. at the concert last week. Um, loved your presence on the mic, on the stage. That was, it was just great. It was really fun to watch. I really appreciate um, that. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so, and I'd, I'd heard you perform in Gardner before mm-hmm. um, at Chovember yeah. um, last semester. Was this your first time performing on an actual Grinnell concert's air quotes uh, ticket? Yeah, and it was also my first time performing my solo work or yeah. work that I had actually um, like written, produced, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, Chovember, I was with um, so, uh, right in Canada, I believe. I was performing with them. We did Sunday Candy yeah. uh, and Turf by Amine. Um, but this was my first outside of covers, mm-hmm. outside of poetry performance and to be able to do it on the, the same poster as 100 gex and be able to open yeah. for oompa is just like a dream come true yeah that was, yeah it was amazing um what was 
maybe what was that whole experience like in the in the build up to the concert with with booking and everything that went everything that people probably didn't see when they yeah. actually showed up at the show? It was uh, probably one of the most stressful few weeks of my life. Uh, <laughs> and that was because uh, I sort of didn't exactly know when because the um, concert schedule hadn't yet been confirmed. So it was sort of like the last two or three weeks of winter break, I was like talking with um, Lucas, who was running the concerts committee um, and trying to figure out when it was going to be. And then I was like, hmm, do I have enough songs to actually do? And then I, I don't know, there's a lot of self-doubt, I think, as well. And it goes into, I'm going to be going out and there performing. And if, like, it's terrible, it's going to suck. It's going to ruin my life or whatever. So I was kind of just like, well, whatever happens, happens. I've sort of committed to this. Can't get out of it now. Um, that week, I worked with Ian, and I worked with a lot of friends on um, solidifying a track list, solidifying uh, the beats. I mean, I actually had, like, the last song that I performed, um, I had, like, written just, like, a, just that week, and I was mm -hmm. trying to just see what I could sort of get out. Because I have a lot of stuff that I've worked on, but um, I wanted to have stuff that I felt proud of, and I felt like represented where I was at currently in my creative process. Yeah. Um, but it was great. No, I was I was extremely excited uh, to have it over with as well as the, mm -hmm. was the great feeling because of um, how stressful that is, and it shows you how much it how much it takes to be a performing artist too. Yeah. It's like it takes a lot out of you. Did you get a chance to interact with Umba much before or after the show? Uh, so I got a chance to go in and say what's up uh, to both Umba and their DJ mm -hmm. um, DJ Alcide. And no, they were awesome. And they, they really showed love, which is what really made me feel really good. It was very affirming um, to know that they messed with me. And I was very happy because Oompa absolutely killed that. And it was crazy. Um, I got to follow them on the social media and I, and I talked to the DJ Alcide about, you know, maybe we'll work together one time in the future. But it, mm -hmm. it was just super cool to step into the industry and be received by people on that first step in. Yeah, yeah. with open arms, that's, yeah, that's exactly. awesome. That's definitely essential. Yeah. Um, so I noticed uh, when you were performing, you were wearing this shirt, um, and please correct me if I get the date wrong, but it said 1619, yeah. correct? Um, and I, I think I remember Umba also shouting you out um, mm -hmm. for that shirt. Yeah. Um, and is that, so I wanted to ask, is that connected to the, the criminal justice um, reform project mm -hmm. that I think... Uh, the New York Times is running? Yeah, so the New York Times has a 1619 project, or they did, um, and it was about sort of uh, re-recognizing or recognizing the history of slavery in the United States. Um, the first enslaved Africans were brought over in 1619, mm -hmm. uh, which last year was just a, exactly 400 years. Yeah. It was the 400-year anniversary of slavery. Um, and I think that that's a history that is oftentimes we don't realize that that was so close and we also don't realize that it ended so close to us as well i mean yeah um like people have great grandparents who are great great grandparents who were enslaved people um so, so sort of the shirt i was just like i need to have something that sort of connects with uh, the message i'm trying to send as well as i think i i mentioned 1619 in one of my songs um because i think that i although i'm not entirely familiar with the new york times project um I was uh, doing a program in Chicago, and I was at a historically black museum, and I saw that shirt, and I was, it's just a strong history. I think everybody needs to know that number is so close. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it, it definitely creates a, a political message that when you're on, when you're on stage yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that something you, you hope to continue um, carrying with you in this, this Malcolm or MX, MXLCXLM? <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, it's pronounced Malcolm. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think it is. I think I also don't want to like throw too much into my wardrobe choices. Uh, <laughs> I was kind of just like, hmm, <laughs> what yeah. do I wear? Yeah. I've got this shirt. Um, but I, I do think, I think fashion is a part of, I mean, you're creating an image and you're yeah. trying to send a message. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's definitely essential to hip hop for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I do hope to continue it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So your your father um, is a storyteller, and his yeah. his personal story is, is integral to his career and the way he engages in the world. Do you consider yourself um, a storyteller, and is, is storytelling your goal? Maybe at the end of the day, when when you create art, um, whether that be your poetry, your music, um, your your plays. Mm. Yeah, I, I think so. I think that that's something that he definitely has passed down to me. Or my family has made a um, and my he works in solo performance which he performed a piece at the Loft Theater, I think, while he was here. Um, and then my grandmother, his mother, 
also has a history of performing solo performance pieces. Um, and I think that it's something that, you know, whether it's writing my plays, doing research on my own kind of solo performance, which is what I hope to do in the future, um, or just making music, whether it be instrumental um, or lyrical. I think that a song is a journey and it's a story. Um, a poem is too, and you have the audience's attention for just a little bit, and you want to be able to take them somewhere. Um, so they're a little bit different when they come out on the other side or have experienced something that maybe they didn't expect to. Um, but absolutely, I think that storytelling is, is my main goal uh, in a lot of things. Absolutely. Awesome. So like, like we've talked about, you've got the beat tape. Mm. Um, you've got a couple singles published. What are, what are you looking at doing next? Yeah. So what I'm really looking, what I'm really interested in doing is um, sort of refining the quality of my releases, uh, whether working on mixing and mastering, um, just because I want to be more proud of the quality, uh, specifically like the high, hi-fi quality of the music I put out. Um, but the music that I performed at the show, I had about seven songs. Um, I'm looking at putting together and cleaning up an EP of sorts, um, which would be my first sort of entry as a, as a lyrical piece, a volume of work. Um, so I'm interested in that. And I had seven songs, so I'd say I'd put all of the songs that I performed on there. But unfortunately, I have to get a sample cleared because I mm -hmm. sampled a Rage Against the Machine song, mm -hmm. which is not allowed. They yeah. will take your music down if you do that, and yeah. you don't have licensing for that. Yeah. Um, but definitely looking forward to releasing maybe some more singles um, and then like an EP or something. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure many other students at Grinnell are and people hopefully outside of Grinnell that yeah. are hearing your work. Um, thank you so much for coming in and Glad to thank be you here. for all your time. Yeah, thank you, Gabe. No problem. You can stream Malcolm's singles, beat tape, and upcoming music on SoundCloud and Spotify, where he stylizes his name as MXLCXLM. Check it out and support Grinnell's artists. And that'll do it for this week's episode. On the next episode, we're talking about the late, great Nobel Prize-winning author Toni Morrison, whose name will soon be inscribed into the walls of Grinnell's newest academic building, next to the likes of Shakespeare and Plato. We'll talk with Shayna Benjamin, Associate Professor of English, about Morrison's legacy, and alum Joanna Giebelhaus will offer her insights from editing and producing the documentary film, Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am. President Kington will also join us to discuss the decision to honor Morrison as the first name inscribed on those walls in over a hundred years. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Pottington Bear, and Malcolm Davis. If you want to contact the show, email me at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss another episode and drop a review on there while you're at it. Maybe leave some nice things to say to pump up my ego. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.